Our reading comes from Jonah chapter 4 and is the entire chapter. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at the place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Thanks, Patrick. Um, Keep your Bibles open. We're going to be working through this story. Uh, As Melinda alluded to, it's the part of Jonah that we don't really know very well. Uh, So you'll be well served if you can have your Bible open uh, and in front of you before, uh, as we go through it. Uh, When we lived in Geelong, we had a very small flat there. Uh, In fact, it was very tiny, um, but it was in a really good location. So we liked it. It was a very simple flat, just functional, but a good place for us to live. So we tried to take good care of it. And when time came for us to leave, uh, we tried to be the good tenants who clean it well. And so we cleaned this place within an inch of its life. We vacuumed, we wiped, we uh, dusted, we did the whole schmozzle. I don't know much about cleaning, but we did it. Uh, And one of the jobs I found myself doing was cleaning marks off the walls, which turned into washing the walls. And because the ceilings look dirty as well, the ceilings too. I know, it's insane, but I washed every wall in that whole house. It was crazy. Uh, All sorts of sprays, all sorts of wipes and strange smelling chemicals. I used them all and made the walls look better. It was very hot, uh, it was dusty, it was sweaty, it was itchy and horrible work and being the man that I am had no gloves nor eye protection. (laughs) After a while, uh, I got too tired to hold my hands above my head any longer so I went to see how Melinda was doing And she looked at me and she jumped in shock. (laughs) I thought, you know, like, I'm no oil painting, I get that. But that was a bit of an unusual reaction. And she looked at me and she said, what has happened to your eye? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) know, It felt a little bit itchy, but that was fairly normal. I'd been cleaning. She said, go and look in the mirror. And I did. And my eye, I jumped with shock as well, because my eye was crimson. The whole thing, my right eye was perfectly red and I'd had no idea, (laughs) no idea whatsoever. I was staggered, I panicked, what do I do? 
Uh, we got it sorted in the end. There was no serious damage. Uh, moral of the story, don't wash walls and ceilings. Uh, if you want to, do it with protective gear and don't rub it in your eye. Sometimes when we look in the mirror, we get a bit of a shock. Jonah chapter 4 is a mirror. It's a mirror for ourselves. It gives us a close and, and really intense look at ourselves. And my guess is, when we look in this mirror this morning, we're going to be shocked. What feels right for us now, Jonah 4 will show us, is actually quite horrific. It's not a pretty picture that we see today. Jonah himself comes under close scrutiny and he doesn't pass. But that's not really the point. The point is, what about us? What about you? Have you learnt the message of the book of Jonah? Have you come to understand what God's love and mercy is really like? Well, we're going to find out here this morning as we look through Jonah chapter 4. Last week we saw Jonah's remarkable success in the city of Nineveh. Amazing story. Jonah uh, goes in, makes a, a terrible effort and wonderful things happen. You know, he preaches his five-word sermon uh, probably just once and the whole city, hundreds of thousands of people, falls down in repentance. It's incredible. <laughs> what, a, what a wonderful story. And you would imagine that Jonah would be on top of the world at that. I mean, that is an amazing response to your preaching. Uh, tremendous success. <laughs> and yet, what do we see Jonah doing? Look at verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Nineveh uh, had let go of the evil it was doing and repented. Uh, God had relented from his destruction. It's the same world from the evil he was going to bring to them. But Jonah is still holding on to his evil. Uh, that's, that's literally the word that's used here. Uh, if you read it very woodenly, verse 1 says, but it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. I mean, just put that in context of what we're thinking of here. We're not talking about a, a, an insult given to Jonah. We're not talking about violence or hurt done to him during his ministry. We are talking about the repentance of hundreds of thousands of people. It was evil to Jonah, a great evil. <laughs> Why? How? <laughs> How could that possibly be? Look at verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. See, finally, finally the other shoe is dropped. We'd seen Jonah run in chapter 1. We got a hint of why he did that there. But now, finally, we're told, explicitly he tells us, this is why I didn't want to do it. This is why I ran away, because I knew who you were. I know who you are, God, and I didn't want to bring you here. I know, God, that you are gracious, merciful, slow to anger, steadfast in love, relenting from disaster. Uh, it's an echo of how God introduced himself to the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 34. He says, this is the God who I know, a God who is uh, beautifully and mercifully loving in all things. And that is precisely the God that Jonah didn't want Nineveh to know because he didn't want this to happen. 
I mean, it, it, it makes him furious with anger. Look at verse 3. Uh, now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. God, I would rather die than see this happen. Kill me now. I don't want to see it. I mean, is, isn't it incredibly ironic? Uh, if you go back into Israel's history, you see them in the desert uh, and, and Israel there rebelled against God. They built a statue of a golden calf, they worshipped that calf instead of God and God was furious. He said, that's it, I'm going to wipe you out. But along came Moses and Moses said, God, don't do that. <laughs> Kill me but save Israel. Take my life and preserve theirs. Well, here again we have one of God's servants, a prophet, crying out to God, kill me, take my life. But not in order that Nineveh be saved, but because they are saved. Isn't that incredible? He would rather die than see Nineveh live. In fact, we, we, we kind of even get a hint of bargaining here from, Nineveh, uh, from Jonah. You know, if, kill me and destroy them too. You know, take us all. That's okay. Take us all. That would be better. Why? How could, how could Jonah be so angry? How could he be so hateful? Well, Jonah knows who Nineveh is. Uh, Nineveh is a prominent city, perhaps the capital uh, of the nation of Assyria. World power at the time, known for their cruelty, known for their brutality. Uh, it was a nation that, that dominated other peoples, that uh, subjugated them, enslaved them, dispersed them all over the world. It, an, an awful nation. And Jonah knew that a strong Assyria was a threat to Israel, was a threat to Jonah's own people. And so he fears. He fears that this repentance, this preservation of Nineveh will mean future strength for that country and therefore mean the destruction of Israel at some point. And so he hopes that that will never happen. He hopes that it might not come. It's that terrible moment when you realise that someone else's loss is, is for your gain and, and you actually are glad when someone else takes a hurt. Uh, the first footy club I ever played for, I was the third ruckman. There were two ruckmen who were far better than me and that made me sad because I like rucking uh, and I wanted that position. Halfway through the season, both the other two ruckmen got suspended and injured and I'm sad to say, I'm sad to confess, I was a bit glad when that happened. Uh, because I got to play my position. Uh, I, I, was, I was glad at their misfortune. Their downfall was my gain. I'm sorry to say, it's totally selfish, I know. But that's exactly what Jonah's thinking here. He knows if Nineveh gets up, Israel are going to go down. And if Nineveh goes down, Israel will get up. And so he hopes with everything that he is that God will not relent, that they will be destroyed. I mean, isn't that terrible? Remember the grace, the, remember the mercy that Jonah's received already. You know, God's rescued him out of his rebellion. God's rescued him out of his sin, called him back from the depths of the ocean and saved him. Jonah's received love and mercy, protection and care without restraint. And now he cannot hope that someone else would see the same. Neither will he trust that even through this, God can still do what's right. All Jonah is thinking about here is his self, is what he wants. I mean, just imagine yourself 
getting in the way, your selfishness getting in the way of someone else receiving grace. Isn't that a horrendous thing? And yet all God does is question him. Look at verse 4. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Literally, do you do well to be angry? And the story moves on. Keeps going. But it doesn't get any prettier for Jonah, does it? This, this selfish prophet doesn't get any better. In fact, straight away we see him acting like a child, don't, don't we? You know, he doesn't get his way, so he goes off, chucks a wobbly and has a sulk. Look at verse 5. Jonah went out, he sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Just, just try and put yourself there and, and picture what is happening at this time. You, you have this city, this huge city, in complete uproar. They are repenting, they are crying out, fasting and weeping and being spared. And then over here you've got Jonah making himself this little makeshift hut, sitting down, having a sook. I mean, the, the picture is absolutely bonkers. <laughs> He is sitting there waiting, hoping even that thousands of people will be instantly wiped out. Isn't that bizarre? Uh, It's recorded that Jonah goes off to the east. You may wonder why that's recorded. Uh, Remember, Jonah's homeland is to the west, the other way. You'd think maybe he's going to start that direction. But there's a specific reason why east is mentioned here. Uh, East in the Old Testament is used often uh, as a symbol for being far away from God. Uh, In a few months' time, we're going to be looking at the opening chapters of Genesis and you see it repeatedly there. When people head east, that's a bad thing because it symbolises they are going away from God. So too here Jonah. Jonah is again getting further and further from God. There's, There's a rift there. He's apart from God. And yet despite that, amazingly, God still shows him mercy. Uh, He's done it the whole story and he does it again here. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. This vine springs up. It's, It's God's provision, God's gift to Jonah. And literally what it does is save him from evil. Uh, I know that we use the words ease his discomfort. It is literally save him from evil. I mean, how good is God? (laughs) What a great thing he's provided here. This is the second time God saved Jonah in this book. He's no more deserving than the first. But yet God comforts this sulking prophet. Uh, And Jonah's emotional rollercoaster continues, doesn't it? Start of the story, greatly angered. Now, greatly happy. Completely different place. But things go south again. Verse 7 and 8. But at dawn the next day God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. The worm bites, the plant withers, the scorching wind sears and the blazing sun beats down on Jonah and his happiness, his great happiness is robbed. And again he's angry. 
uh, probably even angrier than before. And again, there's irony. They compare him to uh, a previous prophet, Elijah, one of Israel's greatest ever prophets. There's a, there's a story, he, he confronts uh, all the pagan priests, he wins that confrontation, but the result of it is the nation ignores him, conflict comes to him, and he's threatened with death. So rightly sad, rightly somewhat depressed, he runs to the desert, finds shade under a tree and begs God to kill him. Jonah, on the other hand, meets amazing success. Now, incredible success, unheard of. There's no personal danger, no threats to him here whatsoever. And he too goes, sits under a tree and asks to die. The comparison is just crazy. Why is he so angry now? Well, obviously, obviously losing the plant is inconvenient. But when you look at the greater context of this story, it's nothing, is it? Jonah's upset over these small material things, whereas he should be glad, he should be rejoicing. There's a city over there repenting, coming to God. Isn't that awesome? He should be happy. But again, Jonah's showing his childish side, isn't he? A couple of weeks ago, we took the kids and friends to Cradle Mountain and it was the perfect cradle day. You know, it, was, it was clear, it was sunny, there'd recently been snow, so the mountain was covered in it. It was beautiful, it was absolutely stunning. We're all blown away by how grand, how, how majestic that view is. The kids, well, they found an iced-over pond behind the lodge and threw rocks into it <laughs> for an hour. And when we tried to take them away from their precious ice, they were violently upset. <laughs> there were tantrums and kicking and screaming and pain. See, in the midst of all this beauty, in the midst of all this wonder, all they could see was a small patch of ice. (laughs) You wonder why you bother. But so it is for Jonah, isn't it? Just, Just again, picture this scene. Huge city. Vibrant, powerful, significant. Completely mourning, completely repenting in fear of God. And in the foreground, this little old prophet sitting under his makeshift shelter, chucking a tantrum over a dead vine. Isn't that mental? Isn't that just absolutely crazy? Jonah just cannot see the big and wonderful and amazing things that God is doing. All he can do is be furious over this vine. And something becomes very clear to us, doesn't it? becomes clear that Jonah loved this vine a lot more than he loved Nineveh. But what's more, and actually even more shocking, is that Jonah loved this gift even more than the gift giver. Jonah's heart is revealed to us here. All the coverings stripped back. This is who he is. And again God questions him. Verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. Again, the same question as before. Do you do well to be angry? And this time Jonah has the guts to say yes. Yes, I do actually. Well, that's enough, isn't it? (laughs) It's lesson time for Jonah. He's got something to learn. And so do we. The, The mirrors coming up, inconsistencies, flaws are about to be shown in all their terrible nature. Look at verse 10 and 11. 
But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? See, Jonah's challenge is very simple, isn't it? Seriously, Jonah, what is that plant to you? You didn't grow it, you didn't plant it, you didn't put it there. It sprang up, it's gone, it had no history, it has no real value. And yet you're concerned about it. The, uh, the word is literally pity. You're taking pity on this vine. What about Nineveh? What about that city just over there, that huge city? That, that city with so much influence, with hundreds of thousands of people. They're not just plants. They're image bearers of God. What about them? What about them? See, God is concerned, literally pitying Nineveh, this city of people who can't tell their right from their left. Now, that doesn't mean they're children. It doesn't mean that they were really dumb. It's talking about their discernment. That they didn't know right from wrong. They weren't innocent. We've seen that they're very evil. They've done lots of terrible things. But they just didn't know right from wrong. They were trapped in their way of life. They didn't know any better. No one had come and told them about the right way. They were lost. They were helpless. They were trapped. How could you not pity them? They were destined for destruction and had no idea how to turn around. See, Jonah is, uh, God is saying, Jonah, how messed up is your heart? You love yourself, you love things. Can you not love what is truly lovely? Can you not love what I love? Full stop. The book ends. I mean... <laughs> My Bible, it ends on the second column of the last page and you think, you know, where's the rest? What happens next? What, where is it? What happens to Nineveh? <laughs> what happens to Jonah? What, what does God do? And we get nothing. That's it. No more mention of Nineveh. No more mention of Jonah. Why? Well, it's because the next character in the story is you. The next person that matters here is the reader. Spotlight's been on Jonah and now it's on you. You're in the crosshairs here. Where do you stand? How do you understand God's mercy? Are you like Jonah? How do you look at the world? <laughs> How do you view the, the lost and the hopeless who are all around you? I mean, we know God's mercy, don't we? We've seen it. We just celebrated it together when we shared the Lord's Supper. We, we, we remembered how good God is to us, that he would send his son to, to give his life in the place of ours, to take the death that we deserve so that we could live, so that we could have forgiveness, so that we could be shown grace and mercy, so that that rescue could be ours. We've been raised up from death to life eternal. That's how good God is. That's how merciful God is. That mercy is offered, that mercy is received by many of us here. Do you show it? Do you live that mercy? Do you pity the lost as God does? Do you value the lost as God does? I mean, remember, 
those people around you who live in this world all around us, they are people of infinite worth. They're not just actors who make up the rest of the cast in our story. They are people, image bearers of God. What's more, they are beings who will live for all eternity. C.S. Lewis absolutely nails it. He puts it like this. He says, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendours. See, that is why God cares about people. Because he sees every person exactly as they are, immortal. That every person is a person who will live forever, either in abject horror or in unlimited glory. Do you see how infinitely valuable your neighbours, your friends, the people you meet every single day are? And will you show them mercy? We have received the hope of life in Jesus. Can we pity those who are still trapped in death? A few weeks back, uh, whilst the toilets in the hall were being renovated, uh, I came uh, out of my office in the evening, just about to go home, and the plumbers had left the front door open. And as I walked out, a blackbird went past me, saw me, got startled straight into the hall and of course did what birds do, straight to the other end and smack into the glass and fell stunned on the floor. I think, well, I'm the only one here, I guess it's my problem. I'll go and deal with it. A uh, bit of background, I don't like blackbirds. <laughs> uh, they're pests, they're introduced, um, they're not nice looking, they're not nice sounding, they've got really no redeeming qualities. Uh, and when we lived on the farm, it was my job to uh, permanently remove them from the glass houses uh, where they would eat hundreds of tomatoes. So I have no love for blackbirds. But when I got to the end of the hall and saw this little bird, which then apparently was still alive, jump up and flutter up against those windows in absolute panic, I couldn't help but feel sorry for it. I know I'm a bit soft, but that's how we are. This little bird was just sitting there against the window, frantic frantically searching for escape. Its eyes were wide, you could see its heart racing, its breath was ragged, it was terrified. So I think, okay, well I'll catch it, I'll let it go. I pitied it, which is why for the next half an hour I chased this little bird back and forth, up and down the hall, I apologise for the mess, uh, trying to free it. And of course, what did it do? Well, it did what birds do. It went window to window to window to window, crashing into each one, trying to get escape. Uh, it, it can see the clear air through there. It thinks it promises escape and finds it doesn't. Finally, it saw the open door. Out it went and crashed into the window in the entranceway, which was ironic, but eventually escaped and lived. But do you see, our world is that blackbird. 
Our world is that bird, isn't it? The people all around you every day, eternal beings that they are, are hopelessly trapped. They don't know right from wrong. They don't know the way out. They cannot see the open door that's just there. And so what do they do? Well, they crash from window to window. They see the illusions of escape all around them and they bash into them, trying to get out, but doing so without hope. I mean, do you see that when you look at our world? Do you see that when you see people walking down your street? Open your eyes. We are so quick to condemn. Now we look at the world, we, we see its violence, we see uh, the, the, the wrong views of sex and alcohol and drugs and all sorts of things, and we condemn. Or we shake our heads looking at the futility of the world. We see people giving themselves to all sorts of things, knowing that they're useless. You know, throwing themselves into to searches for meaning and religion in, in family or work or leisure or whatever it might be. But do you not see what those things are? Those are the shut windows of our world. They look like escape, but all they are are more bars. And our world, panicked, flutters from window to window, searching for escape and never finding it. Trapped, helpless, terrified of death, the the weight of an eternity bearing down on them. They are infinitely precious and utterly lost and trapped in a road to destruction. They they don't even know that the door is open. (laughs) They don't even know that Jesus has, has torn that door wide open, that grace and mercy and compassion and life are right there, freely offered. They can't see it. Do you know that we are the gatekeepers to that open door? We are the ushers saying, look, it's right there, pointing the way. See, too often we are ushers like Jonah, aren't we? We we, we sit there having our little tantrums, not getting our own way or or obsessing over things. We, We stand in the doorway as impediments rather than guides. And don't believe me? I mean, just ask yourself, what did you get angry about lately? What, what, what stirred you to anger? We get, we get furious, don't we, at a, a bad call at the footy. It, it ruins our day when we come home from shopping and see that the shop's overcharged us. We, we fly off the handle when a slow driver cuts us off in traffic. But are we moved when we see our neighbours and our friends and our workmates living without hope throwing themselves against the windows of life, panicked. Do you do well to be angry? Open your eyes and see the lostness of our world. Open your eyes and see it as you drive home from church today. Alveston alone, 9,000 eternal beings trapped and lost. Or 
all that hope, all that purpose that we take for granted. There are thousands around us who have no knowledge of it and it's killing them. Remember, God is merciful. He is holding that door open. This is what he says in 2 Peter chapter 3. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You are the means by which they'll come. This church is a lifeboat. Will we sit inside and just wait for the end? Or will we hear the cries of the drowning all around us and take pity? Will we love as we've been loved? Will we show mercy as we've been shown mercy? Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our apathy. Forgive us for our complacency, for our selfishness. Forgive us for being callous and uncaring to the lost all around us. Father, transform us. Give us your heart, your love for the lost all around us. Help us to show mercy as we have received mercy. To be willing to bear with all our nerves and fears the awkwardness and embarrassment it might cost and take the word of life to the dying all around us. Father, we pray that in your mercy you would let your word be as effective in Olveston as it was in Nineveh. May you rescue the lost by your grace. Father, strip out all the impediments in us to that happening. Make us glad, make us eager Give us your love, your pity for this lost that we might eagerly and gladly hold out the word of hope and life that's in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.